In 2022, Mercedes showed the world something surprising. And to share this with you all. But now, it is the moment we have all been waiting for. It's time to reveal the Mercedes AMG F1 W13 e-performance. There she is, in all her glory. Absolutely magnificent. A new car, a sleek, skinny silver arrow. Side pods? Not really. The W13 looked different to any other car on the grid. On launch day, YouTubers, bloggers and newspaper writers called it aggressive, radical, extreme and impressive. But just a few hours later, as the car did its first laps at Silverstone, the man who masterminded its creation wasn't feeling as positive. We instantly knew we got a problem that we needed to deal with. We created a fundamental problem early on in the design that we needed to undo. Mike Elliott, in his first full season as Mercedes technical director, had a problem to solve. And while he won't be celebrating a championship in 2022, Mike's taken a lot from this difficult season. Having the sort of motivation that comes from not winning, I think will be key for us for the future. The challenging time as a technical director is when it's not working. And to get that done now means that if I can cope with this, I know I can cope with anything that's going to get thrown at me. Welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Mike Elliott has been with Mercedes since 2012, so he's worked with both Michael Schumacher and Lewis Hamilton. And before that, he was an aerodynamicist at McLaren and Renault, designing car bodywork to maximise downforce and minimise drag. He hadn't considered a career in Formula One until he met a racing fan called John Owen while studying at university. And all these years later, John and Mike both work at Mercedes, John as chief designer and Mike as technical director. At the very start of his career, Mike was offered jobs from two top teams on the same day. That's a great story. And he's fascinating on why Mercedes went for their radical design in 2022, how they found its fundamental problem and how to lead a winning team when it isn't winning. And he shows that engineers crave victories just as much as the drivers. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Mike, it's lovely to have you on the show. Thanks for your time, because I'm guessing this is a hectic time of year for you. I mean, where's the focus at the factory at the minute? Well, I guess our head is all in 2023 and trying to fight back to be back at the front. But in order to get to sort of 2023, we need to make sure we've fully understood the car. So most of the development in the factory is focused on next year. Probably the sort of senior engineers are just sort of trying to dot the I's and cross the T's as best we can at the end of the season. Let's talk about the W13 then. Tell us what the car's strengths are. Tell us what its weaknesses have been. When you look at a car, you have to sort of look at it as a whole. And when you sort of think about strengths and weaknesses, we could probably talk circuit to circuit. But I think um, we look back and you look at how we developed the car. And I could point to one moment in time last year where we did something that I think we made a mistake. And what you're seeing in terms of the performance at the track and the way it swings from race to race is a consequence of that. And that's a mistake we've known about for a little while. And it's a, something we've been correcting um, and that's why our performance has gradually got better. But it's not something that we can fully correct for a little while yet. And we will do over the winter. Can you tell us a little more about that mistake? I can't tell you in the details, technical <laughs> detail, because that's something we wouldn't want to give away. But I can tell you that these cars are complicated. And in order to get to the right solution, you have to get the best out of vehicle dynamics, aerodynamics, tyres, the way the chassis works mechanically. And when you make these compromises, they're, they're technically difficult. 
when you look at this year's car versus last year's car, they fundamentally run in a completely different way. You know, they run close to the ground. We've obviously seen the problems of bouncing. And so making that transition from what we were doing last year to this year, we got something slightly wrong. Well, look, can I ask, what made you pursue this car concept? Were you seeing outstanding figures in the wind tunnel? Did you know at the conception stage that you were going to be an outlier this year? We saw a loophole in the regulations, which is what led to the side pod concept. So loophole, we kind of go through the winter and look at and think, has anybody else spotted it? Is somebody else going to turn up with it? And while it looks visually very different, as always with these things, it's about opening small aerodynamic advantages. So without going and sort of running a development on the concept we've got and running a development on a different concept, it's hard to know what it's going to be worth at the end. But it wasn't a huge game changer. In the learning we found this year, it's less about the shape of the car and it's more to do with the way we approach the development of the car, which is where the differences lie. So I think when you look at the side pod, people say, oh, it looks very different. That must work completely differently to the rest of the cars. And it doesn't. It's just a slightly different solution. And so aerodynamically, I don't think is a massive departure from the other cars. It just is something that adds a little bit of performance or added a little bit of performance for us. How confident were you back at the Bahrain test that it was legal? Because I remember the first thing when we saw it for the first time, first of all, there was sort of open mouth shock. Doesn't this look amazing? And then very quickly, the likes of Red Bull were saying, hang on, is this legal? You know, I think when you, you do a concept like that, I mean, if you go back to the old days of the double diffusers and things like that that happened, you've got to be pretty certain that it's legal because you don't want to turn up at the first race having developed the whole car around it and then somebody say, ah, you've missed this in the rules. And so our approach to that is, you know, the aerodynamicists came up with the idea. Uh, we take another group of people, generally run by our uh, chief designer, would go and look for themselves and see whether they could shoot it down any sort of challenges they've got, you then try and address and work out where you are. And then before we turned up to the test, we'd also shown it to the FIA. They'd seen it um, and we discussed it with them. Their first reaction was, uh, that's not what we intended. And then they work through it as well and, and see whether they can challenge it. And there's that discussion that goes on. And in fact, within the regulations now, whenever you turn up with a new design, you go through the CAD with the FIA first. How quickly did you realise that it wasn't going to be as straightforward as perhaps you'd originally thought? Uh, as all the teams do, we did a filming day. For and a us, wet Silverstone. For us, a very, <laughs> very wet Silverstone um, in gale force winds. We'd already heard rumours, you know, you, you know how the, it works in Formula One. There's, there's normally little bits of stories bubbling up and down. You never know what's true and what's not true, that teams were struggling. We'd heard rumours that people had turned up to filming days and just not been able to run. And so when we ran our car and uh, we saw some bouncing, we instantly knew we got a problem that we needed to deal with. And then from there, it's about, well, this is a wet day in Silverstone. We haven't really seen how bad this could be. Um, we needed to go to the first of the winter tests. Um, and then from there, you know exactly you've got, a, you've got a problem to solve. And I think for us, we got through most of that problem by Barcelona. We turned up with a car in Barcelona that didn't have the bouncing problem looked a lot quicker and we thought okay we're, we're, we're back in the hunt again and um, then turned up at two very bumpy tracks and suddenly we were having a big kick in the teeth and sort of back fighting again trying to understand what else we'd missed and what else we needed to do. I was going to say have there been some full storms because Barcelona we came away from there I remember Lewis coming from the back so fast George was arguing over the same bit of asphalt 
with Max Verstappen. And we all came away, I remember, thinking, OK, Mercedes are in this. You know, we'd, we'd worked really hard. I think, I think we, well, all the teams worked really hard. But I think when you look at the position we were in at the start of the season... I think to understand the bouncing, work out what was going on. I think there was a huge amount of effort went into that. You turn up in Barcelona for your sort of hopes and dreams in the new new development you're bringing. You have a really good run in the race saying, OK, we're, you know, we're not out front, but we're back in a sort of position where we can fight. And then turned up in Monaco and it was a lot of sad faces and what do we do next? But, but I think this is a, kind of the, the nature of the problem we faced is that the bouncing issue at the beginning of the year just clouded everything else that was in the car. And I think what we saw in Monaco and then particularly in Baku, we knew we had other problems to solve. And then, then from there, it's just trying to understand it as fast as you can, work out what solutions you can bring quickly. And as I said, what we understood was we we created a fundamental problem early on in the design that we needed to undo and while we've made big steps since then and we've got to a position where at certain races we're competitive, you know, it's just been the sort of the fight you have to bring from there. Have you enjoyed the process of trying to understand this car and improve this car? Or has it just been incredibly frustrating? Well, if you'd asked me a year ago how I would have wanted this season to go, it would have been carry on from last year. Because I think, um, you know, that's, I guess, being new as a technical director, you, you just want it to carry on. Turning up in a year when it's your first car as a technical director having had eight years of success to suddenly find it's not quick is uh, is not a great feeling. Has that weighed on your mind at all, the fact that this is your first car? Yes and no. I think um, I think if you've got a personality where you want to take responsibility, which I'd like to think I have, then you, you feel responsible for it. You're the, the technical director and you're the person that's steering the ship. On the flip side, I think um, the reality of all of these Formula One teams, it, the technical decisions around the car don't revolve around one person we have a very strong group of engineers and I don't mean that to take any of the blame away from me and push it somewhere else I mean that from the point of view you look at the eight years of success we've had that's come from a lot of people contributing a lot of people contributing huge effort and so if I look at what I would consider good technical directors I look at James for instance James Allison James Allison yeah yeah. and how he would have approached it because you try and learn from other people you know when it's not going right you take responsibility for it that's your job and I take full responsibility that we haven't got ourselves in the right place but on the same token you know you you've got to sort of reward everybody else that's really contributed and really brought the success we've had over the last eight years. Mike let's talk about the big job which you took over from James it was July 2021 wasn't it how much of a step up has it been for you from your previous role as technology director and then head of aero prior to that? You know, I guess we're, we're all engineers, probably on the sort of slightly introverted scale. And and you, you're kind of protected. You're kind of in a role where, yes, you've got important decisions to make. You know, even as head of aero, if you didn't do that right, we wouldn't have a car that worked. But you, you're not the person that's the spokesperson. You're not the person standing in front of the team each week to say, this is where we're at and, and this is where we're heading. And there's a chunk of pressure in that. You know, there's expectations from Toto's, expectations from the drivers expectations from our fans and you feel a sense of responsibility for that but it's an amazing challenge and it and it is really enjoyable there are moments i would say it wasn't enjoyable but actually the sort of the learning phase and the getting on top of it and now starting to move forward that that's a bit that's really enjoyable they say you learn more from difficult moments than from success so 
trying to think positively about your current situation. Are you better off for 2023 having been through the experiences you've been through in 22? Well, I guess there's two answers to that. There's the car side and then there's the personal side. I think on the car side, I think if we're brutally honest with ourselves, when you win eight world championships, it's really easy. Not not to be complacent, because I wouldn't describe it as complacency, but to have the failure drives you again. You know, you you remember why it's so what you got from winning and what it's like not to win. And I think that gives you a sort of a sense of drive and a motivation to go on and find that next gear and that next step. Because I think in Formula One, the world never stands still. You know, you're constantly evolving and constantly trying to get better. And so is the competition. And having the sort of motivation that comes from not winning, I think will be key for us for the future. I think for me personally, I think the challenging time as a technical director is when it's not working. And to get that done now means that if I can cope with this, I know I can cope with anything that's going to get thrown at me. And I also think it's also been great for me to learn personally about me and how I deal with those circumstances. I think I've learned a lot about the team of people that work for me and about how they deal with the pressure of not winning. And I think that's going to be really helpful going forward. While it wouldn't have been the year I would have chosen, it has been really useful. How would you describe your management style? I always think that's a better question as to the people I'm managing, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I, I like to think the way I would work is is to say that, but as I was alluding to before, in the world of Formula 1, there's so many very good engineers I work with that there's no point being the person that stands at the front and says, we should do everything like this. You know, I'll tell you what to do. My job is to get the best out of the people that work for me. And I think quite often that is about pulling teams together, getting them to collaborate making sure there's enough tension in there that it's not easy because it you know no teamwork should be easy it should be challenging and it should be difficult but how do you get the best out of the group of people you're working with and in doing that i think what you're after is is creating a collaboration you want to be part of the team and if you can't reach a consensus and a conclusion about what's the right thing to do then you know it's my role to sort of step in and make that decision but what do you mean by tension probably not pressure from me i think you know, engineers that work in Formula One are desperate to win. You know, if, if you're a team that are capable of winning, you're desperate to win. And so they make their own pressure. So it's not applying pressure. It's about having a structure within a team where, you know, people collaborate and they work together. But there's a tension that means that it's not all easy. You know, if somebody suggests something, people are willing to challenge it. You know, there's a, a saying I've heard from somewhere else, which is it's it's not the first idea that counts. It's how that idea is built on and moved forward and what it becomes at the end. And quite often when you look at the ideas that we add onto a Formula One car, they're not owned by one person. Somebody might have had the initial seed of an idea and it's been built on and moved through. And so if, if the environment is too easy and not challenging, you don't get to the best solution. So it's always about having a, a healthy respect between the engineers that they're all pulling in the same direction. They've got the same goals and same motivations but they're challenging enough to each other that you, you get to the best idea. And, and sometimes I think um, with engineers, you want, they want to be right. You know, I definitely want to be right. Um, it's part of the way we're wired. And so... Um, I can when, see tension. Yeah, so when you can push people to, to, to feel like I've got to prove myself to be right, I think you get a little bit extra. Does that make sense? That's yeah, it does. But, and as the boss, do you find yourself playing devil's advocate a lot? Not really. I, I guess... It's slightly difficult here to explain because you now I've grown through the team and so the people that work for me were my peers 
And so we have a good relationship, a relationship we've built over a number of years um, winning championships. And so, you know, how I work with them is less of a sort of step change. Suddenly I'm the boss and you do what I tell you to. That's not how it works. It's, it's actually more of, you know, how is that relationship moving forward? And, and actually because it's worked well together, my role is not so much hasn't changed a huge amount actually the the difference is that it's me that now accepts the responsibility for making sure it is done right at the end and and ultimately if I'm not happy with where we're going to be able to say actually guys I'm not happy let's just discuss this again but I think I've got such a good group of engineers that work for me that that very rarely happens normally we're we're pretty joined up normally we're in pretty good agreement about where we're going I think that's a fascinating topic you've just touched on because you've been at this team for 10 years. You've worked with so many of your colleagues for that amount of time and then suddenly you're now the boss. Does it feel odd? Yes, it does feel odd. But I guess the boss, technically, I've got a Toto above me. I've got a James Allison that is um, still here. He's the chief technology officer and has been a great support for me in helping me develop and, and a good person to go and talk to when when times are, are difficult but i guess it's, it's guess it's just part of that journey and i think um i was chatting to one of the uh, more junior engineers in the company the other day and you suddenly remember you, where you've come from and i don't feel any different to when i was a junior engineer starting in the company but you notice people treat you differently now and you suddenly you're making much bigger decisions than the one you used to make but fundamentally you know the, what drives you is still that uh, interest in the technology and the and the drive to be better than the opposition and to beat them um, and that hasn't changed and it says a lot about mercedes that you can have that career development within the company yeah i think we've you know if you sort of look at the sort of top end of the company you know we've had some very good people leave you know aldo costa mark ellis who've stepped aside jeff who's moved on to doing other things within the company and we've been able to grow from behind and bring people th- through behind and i think that's been fantastic. But I think it also says a lot about the culture of the company, the sort of the, the way we're wired and, and the way we're approaching the problems that we've got and, and how we develop and move forward. I think once you've sort of been embedded into that culture, you kind of it's easy to sort of see how you make that next step and, and how you grow into that role. What about the relationship with John Owen? I did want to ask you about that because you've, no, you've known him for ages, haven't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah, we were at university together. Yeah, and is it true that he persuaded you to get involved in Formula One? So we were PhD students together. So we shared an office. At that time, Imperial College was known for bringing people into Formula One. In my background, my my dad was in the Royal Air Force. So I did aeronautical engineering thinking I'd go on and develop fighter aircraft and all the rest of it. And I fell into a PhD because I kind of got to the end of my degree and thought, actually... I didn't really want that industry anymore. I wanted to do something different and I didn't know what it was. And sort of sharing an office with somebody that was wanted to do F1 got me interested. I'd watched a few races, but it wasn't something I had a huge interest in before. And so a combination of sharing an office with John, having a, a wind tunnel uh, built by Honda for Formula One testing at Imperial. Were you able to get involved in those wind tunnel sessions with Honda? So at that time, it wasn't Honda. I think... Um, we had various teams testing in there. The wind tunnel manager at the time actually went and got married. And in the two weeks he was away getting married, I was asked if I'd look after the wind tunnel. So that's partway through my PhD. So again, I had a couple of weeks working with various teams and, and sort of fell into it from there. 
And, and that triggered the passion for Formula One? It triggered a passion. I, I mean, I was passionate about engineering and technology. And I think, although we get a lot of people join Formula One that are massive Formula One fans beforehand, I think we get a lot of people that join because the level of technology is really high and the rate of turnover and bringing new bits is really fast. So I initially got into Formula One because I thought this is this is a way of getting involved in, a, in high-end technology that's fast turnaround and is going to be interesting. And, you know, we thought, I'm going to see what it's like. Applied for a few jobs, got offered a couple and ended up at McLaren. Well, we'll come on to that in a second. I'm, I'm just interested, you, you talk about the rate of turnover. Um, how has that been affected by the cost cap? Not hugely, to be honest. I Have think lead times increased as a result, for example? No, a little bit. I think more, more to the point we've had to change the way we work to make the best use of the resources we've got. You know, I think when you look at what engineers do, we're always driven by constraints. Science is about the detailed science. Engineering is about doing science in a constrained world. And whether those constraints are aerodynamics for weight or aerodynamics for handling, they're always constraints that you're playing with. And so cost was just another one that got added in. It's taken us a little while to get our heads around that. We're not finance people. But as, as we have, I think you, you find different ways of doing things. And, and as a consequence of that, while the cost cap stops you doing as much as we used to do, I think the innovation hasn't changed. Do you find the job stressful? I think if you asked my wife that, she'd say yes. <laughs> um, I guess there's a. Re you know, I was always taught when I was when I first got into management, a really simple model that there's comfort zone surrounded by stretch zone, surrounded by a panic zone, and you have a choice where you want to be. And I think most of the engineers that end up in Formula One don't want to be in their comfort zone; they get bored. And if you want to learn as fast as you can, you want to be right at the edge of that stretch zone and not quite into the panic zone. And I think um, as you grow and develop, you get used to more and more. You know, I've said to some people, I, when I was in aero, you know, you'd stand up and you'd talk to a hundred and odd people in aerodynamics. And the first time I did it, you were a quivering mess. And by the time I left aerodynamics, your heart rate didn't move. And I've noticed exactly the same thing talking to the whole factory. You know, doing things like this as well, that you, the first time you do it, it, it's really uncomfortable, but you quickly get used to it. And I guess that's what you want. You want to grow and you want to be stretched. Would I have chosen this the, the year we've had? No, but that's just the way it comes and, and you've got to deal with that. Do you ever switch off from Formula One? Rarely. I think when you're in a business like this, where you're competing at a high level, you're constantly thinking about it. Um, Even when you're on holiday with the family? I think if you ask most Formula One engineers, they tell you that the first three or four days of the holiday, you, you're still there. And probably the three or four days before you come back, your mind starts to get back into it. But the weekends, you're mulling stuff over. I think if you've, you're working on an interesting project, it's not unusual to wake up in the middle of the night with a sort of slightly eureka moment that by the time you get to the morning and the world is less cloudy, it's not such an eureka moment. That's just, but that's just the way it is. Are you, you're reminding me of Rory Byrne. Um, remember who... Yeah. Uh, worked at Ferrari, he said he always used to keep a notepad by his bed because he would wake up in the middle of the night and he'd write down whatever the idea was because he didn't want to forget it by the morning. Yeah, I do the same, but with my phone. So I just put it into the notes on my phone. The problem is you wake up in the morning and you look at that. That seemed like a really good idea at two in the morning. It just doesn't seem quite so good now. Now, look, Mike, I do know that you have a passion for wildlife photography. And I was looking 
through your Instagram pictures. Oh dear. <laughs> now this might be an odd question, but do birds intrigue and inspire the aerodynamicist in you? I think anybody that knows me would tell you that I I like to read far and wide. I have all sorts of interests outside of Formula One and I like to just work out from that stuff what could I apply in what I do, whether that's engineering or whether that's management style. As I said before, Formula One's a learning game and it's it's about trying to learn faster than the opposition. And I think if you can bring some of that stuff in, that's really useful. If you look through my Instagram pictures, you might have seen a picture, I think it's of a blue tit in flight and it got some comment like full air brakes on and as it was coming in to land. So there's obviously some crossover. <laughs> Now, you mentioned a little bit earlier that first job at McLaren. How did it come about? Oh, some interesting stories there. <laughs> so, um, like we were saying before, I I'd, I'd sort of got interested in, in aerodynamics in Formula One at university. Uh, applied for a few jobs, interviewed at McLaren, and a couple of days later came for a quite unusual interview here. But it was BAR at the time. And I was asked to come and do a night shift in the wind tunnel with Willem Tote on the train home. Having been offered the job here, I got offered the job at McLaren and I chose to go to McLaren, which meant it was quite a, f a strange first day here because there's a few people knew that story and it didn't go down very well that I'd seen all of their car in the wind tunnel and then gone somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it was McLaren, then Renault, then Mercedes. How different is the culture in each of those teams? Yeah, I mean, very different. I think you always, when you look at a team, it's really difficult to, to look back at a team from that you used to work for. The reason being is they evolve so quickly, the management changes. And so I couldn't compare what Mercedes is like now to what Renault is like or what McLaren's like. So in McLaren, I'd, I'd done aerodynamics. I'd had three years on the race team. I was working doing simulation work in the simulator, looking at the influence of aerodynamics on the drivability of the cars. And I'd just got to the point in my career where I had to decide what I was going to do. Was it vehicle dynamics? Was it aerodynamics? Or was it potentially race engineering and that route? And so having done eight years there, never worked anywhere else, I just looked for something different. That's how I ended up going to Renault. And I was really lucky. I fell on my feet because I think at the time, I think McLaren was strong aerodynamically, but Renault were really strong in their efficient use of production in aerodynamics. So I went from an environment at McLaren where we were doing sort of 20 odd runs a day, turned up at Renault and they were doing 50 runs a day. And the only reason the two teams had the same performance is because McLaren were aerodynamically stronger. So, of course, I was able to go into that environment and make a difference because I was able to bring knowledge that Renault didn't have. And so you kind of look at it and it's fortuitous. While at McLaren, you work with Adrian Newey. What was that experience like? I was really lucky. In, when I joined McLaren, Adrian was there. There was a guy called Henri Durant, who was head of aero, and uh, uh, Peter Prodromo. And um, they were good people very experienced, very knowledgeable. Formula One was at a size where you spent a lot of time with the senior people. And I remember it used to be a Friday afternoon, we'd sit down, uh, look at the CFD. In those days, it was big, thick paper books of printouts from CFD that we would go through. You know, Adrian would walk in with a pile of books and he'd explain his ideas of what he wanted to do next. Peter would walk in with his pile of books, he'd explain his ideas. And, and the newer junior people like me might have one or two that of ideas we, we would show with them. And they were really good at explaining their thinking, spending time with us and, and listening to our ideas or what we were doing. 
And so that was a you know, very good learning experience. What do you think Adrian's standout quality is? It's, it's difficult to know. The world of Formula One has changed. I think in that time, I would say he had a very wide ranging experience and that allowed him to bring together an understanding of the whole car and allow him to uh, come up with ideas, understanding how it all fitted together. And I think um, when you look at the world of Formula One now, it's, it's a much bigger business. And as a consequence, the engineers come through specialist routes and it's probably more difficult to have that sort of that really well-rounded understanding. But I also think the, the counter to that is now it's a bigger business. The role of the senior people is less about understanding the finer details and more about how you get teams of people to work together in a high-performance team. And did you arrive in Formula One early enough, and we're talking year 2000, to have that understanding of the whole car? Not particularly. I think I, I, like I said before, I spent time in aero, spent time at the track and spent time in vehicle dynamics and then came back to aerodynamics. I think I was lucky enough to get a pretty good understanding of the vehicle dynamics world and of aero. The sort of the mechanical aspects I'm picking up now as part of my job, but um, I've got good people who understand those areas. Can we talk about the bosses that you've had? <laughs> Two in particular. Yeah, OK. Ron Dennis. Yep. And Toto. They've both overseen periods of domination. Do they have similarities? I mean, I think with Ron, it's very difficult for me because I was pretty junior there. I had some some interaction with him on the race team. Ron is, is famously told as sort of very fastidious, had, you know, the attention to detail was almost an obsession. And I'd say that with, with Toto, there's huge attention to detail. It's not, not the sort of same level of, of obsession. So that's a similarity there. I think they're both hugely passionate about their teams and about producing a culture which is high performance. And I think both of them have had huge impacts in their times on, on the way their teams work. I think it's probably hard to sort of say more than that because I think while I know Toto really well, I didn't know Ron as well. How have you enjoyed the interactions with Toto? Obviously, I've known Toto all the time I've been in the team. And I think he's a really interesting person to know. He has a very different approach the one I would how I'd approach things I'm I'm an engineer probably slightly introverted I think uh, or more than slightly depends who you ask but I think with Toto you've got some somebody who's run big businesses an entrepreneur very happy taking risky decisions and I think it's really interesting talking to him and sort of sharing ideas and discussing things because we come at quite different approaches but this year there's been times it's been challenging because we've not been where we want to be and I think um both passionate about trying to sort that out. But Mike, as an example, when you spotted the loophole in the regulations last year when you were coming up with the 22 car and you put the idea to Toto, does he immediately support that idea? Yes, let's go for it. It might be a slightly riskier option, but let's do it. I think when you find something like that, you just it gets discussed in, in our senior technical management meeting. Uh, Toto will listen into that. Having had a year last year where we were pushed and obviously at the end didn't didn't quite get the result we wanted with Lewis, we always knew this year we'd want to push hard and we wanted to get ourselves right out in front. The rules were such that we had less aerodynamic testing because of where we finished in the championship last year. So so we always had to approach with probably a bit more risk than we would have done in normal years. But Toto's always fully on board with that. I think as long as we can explain to him why we're doing it and what we think the benefit is and it's you know properly thought about idea, it's fine. While we're talking about regulations, 
you've been involved in Formula One for more than 20 years. What have been the most interesting set of regulations that you've worked on? 20 years, that's a long time. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, V10 engines, V8s, we've got the V6 turbos now, double diffusers, F-ducts. I'm guessing you were at McLaren at that time, were you? The F-duct came just after I left. I know the person that developed that really well. I don't really have a favourite time. And I think it's, it's really interesting. If you, if you go and you put all the cars in a row... You go back in time, put all the cars in a row, and you ask a, an F1 engineer to look at them and talk you through them. They'll talk you through all of the things that they would have done better. And so as you, as you sort of look forward in time, you, you evolve and it moves forward. I don't particularly like this year's set of regulations, not just because we're, we're not winning, but I think the, the way the regulations are constructed is, is technically very complicated and, and more difficult to follow. Double diffusers were fun. You know, Renault, we were on the back foot because we didn't think that was legal and playing catch up was interesting. You know, exhaust blowing was interesting. We had the, the the interesting concept at Renault with the exhaust blowing at the front of the side pod, which another great story, because if all the engine mode stuff hadn't have happened, that would have been a really good concept. When you got to the very high levels of exhaust blowing that you could do when you started to use the engine engine for aerodynamic purposes, the front sort of blowing topped out and, and the benefit was limited. But early on, it was a, it looked really competitive. It was a odd thing to see in the rain was the sort of rain being blown off the track sideways out. Did you have cooling issues with that? No. Um, Hot exhausts going? No, there was something, I can't remember what race it was. It was something where there was, I don't know, fire extinguisher or something that sort of went bang in the side pod because it got too hot. But it wasn't as technically challenging to do as, as you might expect. The, the issue just came about that as as we started to realise people were finding ways of generating much more exhaust momentum through clever engine modes, we found that that particular solution just rolled off in terms of performance at the high blowing rates. And so its advantage early on was because it didn't give a balance shift. You know, in the very first blowing, the balance of the car was moving around all over the place with throttle pedal, and that was giving us something that was really balanced. But once people have found engine modes that you could get by those problems and get much more momentum, it, it wasn't the right solution. But you look back on those times fondly in, in the sense that you've come up with something that nobody else has come up with. It's, it's clever and it's innovative. And I guess that's in some ways what the engineers like doing. Do you think we'll get to a point with the current set of regulations where you'll look back fondly or is it too tight now? Is it too regulated? Well, hard, hard to know. I, I think, you know, Formula One evolves. And, you know, when I said this is probably not my favourite set of regulations, you know, who knows what what the next set will bring. In some ways, it's part of what we do as engineers. You know, that's that's the constraints that's placed upon you. And, and the aim of the game is to do a better job than the opposition do. We haven't done that this year. Um, hopefully, we'll do a better job next year. And, and looking ahead... What challenges does Formula One face as it heads towards 2030 and its net zero carbon target? Could you ever envisage a day when Formula One is fully electric? I mean, there's lots of talk about engine noise, etc., etc. I don't think that's the bigger deal. I think the spectacle of racing is what's important. People want to see the best drivers in the best cars. And at the moment, the electrical cars can't quite get there. They don't have the energy capacity to race on the circuits we would race for the sort of length of times we would race on. What I find really fascinating, you know, I was in a conversation today with the CTO of Daimler, for instance, talking about the technology of Formula One and where it's going. And actually the crossover from technology that we're running now and we're developing for 2026 is higher than it's ever been. 
So although the future of, of road cars is electric, there's actually lots of technology in electric motors, in e-fuels, in, in batteries that are going to be important. You know, even when the car industry goes fully electric, there's going to be a lot of cars still left that are combustion engines. So what are we going to run those on? So the development of e-fuels and how you get best the best out of e-fuels is, is still important. And electric motors, batteries are going to be important. Maybe we'll get to a stage where batteries are efficient enough that they make good racing cars or that we can charge them fast enough that we can do it in a pit stop. And, and that's the route we go. And in some ways, other than the noise, I don't think it will change Formula One. It, you know, Formula One will be about getting the best out of the technology that's available. And you mentioned the best drivers in the fastest cars. Can we talk about drivers? First of all, did you ever hanker to be a, a racing driver? I'm guessing not. It seems to be aeroplanes were, were your no. thing. No, and in fact, I, uh, I spent two years working in the simulator at McLaren. I've been offered multiple drives in the simulator here and I've never chosen to do it. And the reason being is that we work in a high-performance industry. I know I'm not going to be high-performance if I got behind the wheel, so I think I'll stick to trying to design the cars. But no, it's never an interest for me. Do you enjoy the experience of working with drivers? Yeah. If you've never experienced a Formula One driver, they are pretty special people. You know, if you get in a car with them and go around a track, your eyes are on the stalks. People think, oh, it's about their reaction times. It's, it's their ability to to compute what it is the car can do and how they can get it to the limit, how they can get that last little bit out. And when you think we're sitting here and we're talking and a second is a long time and you think the difference between the drivers at the very top end of fractions of that, a tenth or something, to go around a circuit repeatedly in a tenth is, is just un unbelievable level of skill. You know, as much as the engineering of the cars has moved on and as much of the quality data we get from the car, the driver is still massively important for how we develop and how we move forward and to understand how you get that last little bit of performance. And is it especially important when you have a tricky year like you've had now? And we sort of look at it, you've got a world, seven time world champion in Lewis in the car and a car that's not fitting for the skill set he's got. But I think both he and George have worked with us, put up with with the engineering solution we've given them and have helped us sort of move it forward and to understand how do we get better. And I think it's always the difficult bit is identifying a solution is, is the first part. Actually turning that into what you're going to do about it and how quickly can you bring it is always the hard bit. And I think um, the drivers have been really good at keeping their calm and, and helping us sort of move forward. But how has Lewis's experience helped you? I think Toto keeps saying to me that the driver's the best sensor in the car, and he's got a point. There you can feel things that we can't see in the data. They're not always right, because, because it's difficult, but they'll, they'll sometimes say things to you. If you listen to them really carefully, you listen to what they tell you in the detail of the car, you can find things to go and look at in the data, and then that helps you identify issues and to move the car forward. Interesting about uh, Toto's comment there. Just a few weeks back at Monza, Fernando Alonso came on the radio to say, I think there's a problem with the car, guys. And his engineer came back and said, no, no, it looks fine on the data. And sure yeah. enough, he retired from the race yeah. a few laps later. So yeah, case I, in point. Well, I guess in that, that case, I don't know what happened. But I, you always got to bear in mind that the engineers are looking at thousands of channels of data. The one that's gone wrong is quite difficult to spot, but it's probably easier to feel. Can we talk a little bit more about Lewis? Did you work with him at McLaren when yeah. he first came in? Yeah, I was sat in the grandstands at the end of the Hangar Straight at Silverstone 
in the GP2 race where there were three abreast through Maggots and Beckett's. It was a stand that McLaren had hired for the, all of their staff. So we were all in there watching going, yeah, I think he's going to be in the car next year. Um, and I remember him turning up in, I can't remember what the test was, and then he, he drove the car like a go-kart. It was unbelievable when we looked at the day, he drove the car like a go-kart. And, and that first season in his rookie season against Fernando was special to watch. But I'd already seen Lewis lots because uh, back in those days, we used to be able to runway testing for aerodynamics. So we go to places like Elvington. Occasionally, if we're lucky, we went to Mallorca. That's quite a nice place to go to do runway testing for aerodynamics. But the young drivers would come and drive and Lewis was one of those. And so I met Lewis when he was pretty young. And one of the things I always say about him, and I keep saying it to him as well, is he was the first driver to come up to me at the end of the test and say, what can I learn from that? How can I improve? And I was really impressed to think that, you know, this was somebody that was clearly on on the route upwards and was going to be a star for the future. Normally what happens is the drivers turn up to a runway test and they're all excited because they're getting in a Formula One car. And by the time they've driven up a runway half a dozen times in a straight line, turn around and come back down the straight line, they're pretty much falling asleep at the wheel. But, you know, to come and ask, what, what can I learn from that? How can I improve for next time? I thought was pretty special. Can you describe the mood here at Mercedes when you knew that Lewis was coming in 2013? We'd had Michael at that time as well. And I think all right, we probably had Michael towards the end of his career. But I think we, we'd had somebody in the car that was a recognised world champion. But I think for me personally, I'd left McLaren. Uh, so Lewis won the championship on the Sunday and I would finished on the Friday before. I had the very strange experience of sitting on the sofa at home cheering for Lewis, knowing the following day I was going to work for another team. And so I was really pleased when I saw him coming here. I, you know, you knew this was going to be a top driver. You knew that um, if we could give him a car that was that could win races and world championships, he would do it. And uh, so, so that was an exciting moment for us. But equally, had Michael Schumacher left a, a very positive impression on you? You always look back at things and think, what would it have been like to work with people at different times? So I think Michael was in the last, the latter stages of his career. Um, he he was brilliant to work with in the sense that his ability to communicate what the car was doing was really good. But I think there's inevitably in, a, in drivers, they sort of, their performance builds with experience and then they get to a level where it's, it's really difficult to maintain. And I, I'm not sure whether I really saw the very best Michael that's the frustration disappointment I guess I'll have to carry well look, we must talk about George Russell as well what has impressed you about George this year a number of things I think his performance in the car the consistency he's shown you know he's made very few mistakes that's been really impressive but I think the other aspect for me is a, as a technical director he's, he's very good to work with from an engineer's point of view in the sense that he gets it you know, you can have a conversation about what you think the car is doing on an engineering basis and he quickly really tunes into that and is able to give you feedback that's easy to use and to understand. And I think that's going to be really useful for us going forwards. Was Nico Rosberg another driver like that who could tune into an engineering conversation? Nico was very good at giving feedback that was very useful for the engineers. I think the difference I'd say with George is at times you kind of you kind of forget he's not an engineer. When you explain things to him from an engineering sense, he gets it. Sometimes you, you, you discuss things with a driver and you explain it and they nod their head and say, yeah, I understand it. And then a couple of days later, you get a question and you think, ah, no, you've not quite understood. With, with George, uh, that doesn't really happen. He, you know, he'll come back to you a couple of days later and you'll discuss the topic and he's clearly picked it up and he's understood it. And I think that's that's impressive. One more thought on 
Rosberg. Can I get your memories of Hamilton and Rosberg in 2016? When you look at um, rivalries, you know, Nico, Lewis, you know, Lewis Fernando back in my early days in, in Formula One, these drivers are desperate to win. That's all they've ever dreamt about. And, and so I think um, you can go very quickly from being best of friends to sort of, you know, wanting to beat the other one because that's what you're there to do. And my memories of that was it was, uh, was sort of on the periphery thinking this is going to be a tricky year. In some ways, it's a good thing because in, in, that was a year where we had a dominant car and, and actually, you know, without that rivalry, uh, without the two of them pushing each other really hard, it probably wouldn't have been as good a season as it was. Yeah, we just need two drivers, don't we? Yeah. Going hammer and tongs. Well, can we go back to the W13 and look at this year's car with a view to what you're going to be doing for 23? Do you still believe in the concept of um, what you had in 2022? In order to answer that question, you have to define what you mean by concept. Outside of Formula One, from the fans' basis, when people say concept, they're probably thinking about things like how the car looks, what's the shape of the side pods. From an engineer's point of view, the way we develop the car is to think about what we want to get from it. So it's about where are you targeting performance? Uh, what do you want the aerodynamic characteristics to look like? How are you going to target those? How do you get the best out of the tyres and the suspension? And so there isn't really this thing as a concept. You know, people have this idea that you start off with this idea of what the car's going to look like and you go and make it. And it doesn't work like that. You know, instead, you, you look at the regulations, you look at where the opportunities lie in those regulations, you look at what are the things you think are going to hold you back, and you say, what are the areas I need to go and look at and understand? And you go and you look at those and then you understand and you start developing. And the car evolves and morphs into the final solution. It doesn't start off as something you expect to see at the end. So if the real question is, are we going to keep the side pod geometry as we've got, then the answer to that is we'll go with what the numbers tell us. So we've already looked at other solutions, but we, we will keep looking at solutions and we'll go with whatever we think is going to give us the quickest car at the end. And how do you think the rule changes over this coming winter are going to affect performance? Well, this is a, the raised floor edges is probably the main thing aerodynamically. I think that's going to keep the floor edges off the ground in the high speed. And I think that generally is probably going to be helpful for most teams that are, that are running the, the car really low. On the flip side, recovering the lost performance from that, we'll have to see which way that drives us, whether that drives us to run the cars lower and therefore you end up back in the same problem or, or not. But 15 millimetres is not a huge move. It, it's not fundamentally changing the aerodynamics. You know, we're still going to have ground effect cars and they're still going to be prone to bouncing and if you're not careful with how you deal with them aerodynamically you'll still have that problem and then you've also got the other things like toughening up the roll hoop structural tests and, and bits like that which are just bread and butter for design but that'll put more weight higher up will it uh it depends on where you are in terms of those limits and as to whether you think you can easily pass them or not what is the biggest thing you've learned from the first year of these new regulations i think the biggest thing we've learned is how you go about adapting to them what's the right solution and again, we're going to drift into concept bit here, but but actually what's the right approach to, to how you find performance with them? And without giving too much away about what we did wrong in the first place, we've had to learn and adapt what we're trying to do. Do you think the grid will close up in 23? Normally in a set of rule changes, as the rules get fixed and they're fixed for longer and longer, the teams tend to converge. I think um, the intention of a cost cap to try and constrain the grid Probably the front three teams are as far as headers as they've ever been. 
whether that will change with time, I think we'll have to wait and see whether that's, you know, that might just be that because we've had funds in the past and we've been better resourced, there's underlying capability we've been able to bring and maybe that will close up, but we'll have to wait and see. But just second year of the regs, everyone's had a chance to see what everyone else is doing. Do you think as a result of that, it'll converge and we'll see similar ideas from front to back? Well, I guess I guess the other way of looking at that is, you know, we've mentioned the side pod concept. If you look at Ferrari, Red Bull and us, which are the three quickest teams at the moment, well, most of the time we're the three quickest teams. We've had some difficult races. But if you look at those three teams, they look visually very different. So I guess the logical thing is to copy the quickest car, which is unfortunately is Red Bull, much as it's not great for me, but... Um, and we'll see whether other teams do that. But I don't think um, you can just photocopy a car and suddenly jump to the front. It doesn't work like that. So I think I think it's more about trying to understand what people's thinking are, what their approach is. And that will converge up a bit and, and maybe the teams will move together. But I, I don't think it'll be next year. I think it'll take a few years. Mike, it's so evident that you love what you do. I, I think you love the technical side of it. I think you love the competitive side of it. Am I right on both of those counts? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I've never worked in anything but Formula One, so it's hard to say what, what different looks like, but it's special. There's not many jobs you can do in an engineering world where you're, you're working with interesting technologies, you're working with brilliant people because, you know, we are very lucky we can attract brilliant people into Formula One. And you've got that camaraderie and you've got that, tests we do every every week every couple of weeks at the track that sort of shows how much you've moved forward and how good a job you're doing and times when that's painful most of the time that is that is fantastic competition and you know it's a sport and to be involved in that sport is brilliant you say you've only worked in formula one is there any bit of you that hankers to try something else use all the experience you've built up in formula one in a different sphere well, I guess if I don't get it together, we don't produce a good car, it might not be my choice. But I think if I was to go and do something else, it'd be how could I give something back? You know, is that teaching? Is that doing something along those lines? That might be interesting. I think in terms of a sort of a challenge and a sort of a desire to compete, I think this is what I want to do. And this is what we all want to do. I need to be careful because you're going to be after my job because you've segued beautifully into my final question, which is sort of to do with, with teaching. For any young aspiring F1 engineers listening, why should they consider a career in aerodynamics? Career in Formula 1, let's start there if that's okay. It is a fantastic sport. You know, there's, there's not many places you can work in high-end technology and in a sporting environment. And I think the challenge of that and the, the being able to see exactly where you are one week to the next is brilliant. In terms of aerodynamics, I guess Formula One for a number of years, and hopefully it carries on that way, has been driven by aerodynamics. You know, of the three things that we do, the biggest three things are engine, tyres and, and aerodynamics. Within the chassis team, the aerodynamics is the one we've got most control of. And that's not belittling any of the work anybody else does because everybody contributes to performance. But traditionally, the aerodynamicists have done well and they've moved into the senior positions. Again, go back to university. I end up doing aerodynamics because... I was a glutton for punishment. I wanted to push myself and find out how far I could push myself. So I chose what was at the time the most difficult course in the country, which was Aero Imperial. My career has always been, and my decisions have all been about trying to challenge myself and to move forward. And if you want a challenging, competitive career, then aerodynamics and Formula One is a good way to go. Brilliantly said, and we'll leave it there. Mike, thank you very much for your time. Really enjoyable. Thank you for your time. It's been brilliant. 
What an enlightening conversation about so much more than just Formula One. Listen to Mike talking about the technology transfer between F1 and road cars, or his passion for wildlife photography, and you realize he's a very interesting and interested man. In the context of Formula One, a few things stood out for me. How Mike likes a little bit of tension in meetings in order to bring out the best in his engineers was a real insight into the work ethos at Mercedes. And his understanding and appreciation of drivers was very clear as well. And right at the end, he spoke about always wanting to push himself, be that reading aerodynamics at the most demanding course in the UK or thriving under the pressure of Formula One to produce a winning car with his Mercedes colleagues. That mentality is crucial, especially when times are tough. Mike, it was great to chat, and I look forward to seeing you again at a race soon. And as ever, I'd love to hear your thoughts and stories about Mike. Send me what you've got at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. I'll read a few of them out at the end of next week's show, which leads me on to what you sent in about Martin Donnelly after last week. Martin's amazing story left me and many of you open-mouthed in disbelief. Let's start with this from Steve Nisius. I loved your interview with Martin. What a great fella who was amazing after his accident. Always a person to look up to with both his outlook, his attitude, and as far as the legend goes, he's the only man to have silenced DJ. Great episode, many thanks. Well, thanks to you, Steve, for getting in touch. And you're right about Martin's attitude, such positivity. He's an inspirational character, no doubt about that. Next, let's hear from Sniffer Media. Can't recommend this podcast highly enough. It's classic Martin D. Honest, funny and poignant. He really was the real deal when I was a kid. And it's always been a pleasure chatting to him over the years. And his description of EJ's follicular arrangement is particularly excellent. Well, it's great to hear from you, Sam. And I sense that Martin is one of the few people in the racing world who's been able to navigate his way through EJ's bluster. Finally, let's hear this from Ash Miller. Another great podcast, Tom, having worked closely with Martin over many years as both an inspirational friend and a colleague. He's never short of a story, the best of which wouldn't dare be repeated on a podcast. Always a pleasure. Well, thanks for getting in touch, Ash. And maybe one day I should ask Martin about doing an After the Watershed part two. We'll leave it there for this week. Thank you to everyone who wrote in. I read all of your messages like I always do. And as you did with Martin, please remember to send in some thoughts and stories about Mike Elliott. And while we're on the subject of technical directors, we've had a few of them recently on Beyond the Grid. McLaren's James Key, Alpha Tauri's Jody Eggington and Alpine's Pat Fry. Why not have a listen? You'll find the links to those interviews in the episode description. And you can scroll through the back catalogue of Beyond the Grid for interviews with James Allison, Toto Wolf, Christian Horner, Lando Norris, George Russell and many more. Plus, you can always check out the latest episode of F1 Nation brought to you straight from the Singapore Grand Prix paddock. Thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.